0: All right, everyone, if you would, open up your Bibles. It might be helpful to have them open. Um, I know the text is printed in your bulletin, but uh, page 981 in your Bible, 981. We're looking at Philippians chapter 3. And I'm going to kind of look back at last week's passage just a little bit early on in the message, so it might be good to have that open. Um, Our passage is Philippians chapter 3. And we're starting in verse 12, and we're going to read through the first verse of chapter 4. It actually all kinds of goes together. I don't know who came up with those numbers originally, but uh, it all goes together. So you'll, you'll understand when we, when we read it. So last week in the message, we saw that, that Paul repudiated legalism. He, he showed us that not only are we saved by grace, but we also live by grace, and that there is no room for the roller coaster Christian life of feeling so close to God on the days in which we do our so-called Christian duty, but then feel so far from God when we fail. See, we are, we are saved by grace, and we live by grace. If you missed the message, I, um, I encourage you to go online. Uh, you can listen to all of our sermons there. I recommend this one to you. Um, but perhaps some of you are thinking, Okay, Mark, so I seem to see a problem here. Uh, won't God's grace cause people to just sit back and really not care how they live their lives? I mean, if God doesn't base our relationship with him upon how well we follow his laws, then why follow them at all? (laughs) In our passage this morning, Paul says immature Christians might think that way, but the mature Christian, he actually uses that word mature in our passage, doesn't want less of Christ, but rather more of Christ. The mature Christian's entire life becomes wrapped up in Christ, who he is, where he's going, and what he is doing. Mature Christians aren't content to just know that Christ forgives. They want to know this forgiving Christ in whom they are found. So our passage is, where'd it go? There we go. Philippians 3, verses for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, of whom I have often told you, And now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is their destruction. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, then we must know his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that this word is in scripture It encourages our hearts. It reminds us of the beauty of the gospel, that we are found in Christ uh, and that our lives are bound up in his glory. Help show that more and more to our hearts. We want to grow with joy. We want to mature in our walk with you. Um, so by your spirit and live our time of teaching that we may. Appropriate this good message, we pray. Amen. This church preaches too much grace. Those were the astounding, shocking words I heard from the new couple at our church back in St. Louis, the ones that i would recruited as the youth director to teach Sunday school in the high school ministry. See, they had moved to the area about three or four months prior. They became good friends with the pastor. Uh, All of their high school-age kids were just really nice, and they looked well and well-mannered. They dressed nicely. And as the youth director, even when your church gets bigger, I mean, we have a small church. We're always needing people to serve in Sunday school. It doesn't matter how big you get. You're always looking for somebody to help and to serve. Um, So... Here's what happened. One day I was sitting in this class where they were teaching, and they were supposed to be teaching from the assigned lesson in the book of Romans that all the classes were teaching. So, but they sat before these sophomore students, and they said, open up your Bibles to 1 John 3, verse 9, and they read, he re- they read this. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God And as they read that, they began to list off all the different types of sins that high school boys and girls were known to enter into, and they said, you cannot call yourself a Christian if you do any of them. And I looked around the circle of sophomore kids at these little legalists in the making, and they were all nodding their heads in approval all except for Zach. Zach was the boy who carried a lot of shame and sorrow. He was the boy that I met with almost weekly for a couple years, who shared with me just struggles that he had and I had to continually remind him that your righteousness is in Christ, that you trust in him. And here he was, hearing from these teachers, all of these sins, some of which were close to him in his life and I could see by his body language that he was giving up. At the end of the class, I pulled the teachers aside and I asked them, well, Why didn't you teach from the assigned lesson in Romans? And they said, the woman spoke up and she says, Well, last week, last week we heard we we heard one of the students say a cuss word. And so we had to let them know that Christians don't cuss. After letting them spout off for a bit, and I'm not suggesting Christians should cause, I informed them that their approach actually undermined Christianity, and it went against one of the primary tenets that our Sunday school teachers were to know, that we don't want our students to focus on the rules, that they need to focus on the fact that their relationship with God is based on grace, and then they let me have it. This church preaches too much grace. Within 10 seconds, they resigned from teaching Sunday school. They said they would go quietly, but by mid-afternoon, I was getting a number of phone calls from other Sunday school teachers wondering what I did wrong to run off such a good couple. The better question is, where did this couple go wrong? Well, I think this is where it is. I think they believe that grace is the root of licentiousness. The word licentious has the word license in it. It's as if by God's, because God forgives you of your sins, you therefore have license to do anything because he's duty-bound to forgive you. And it's true, some Christians are licentious. They wrongly conclude that, that they are saved by grace and therefore cannot lose their salvation, and therefore it doesn't matter how they live. And so they live their lives seemingly no different than their unbelieving neighbor's. Now, the couple who taught Sunday school incorrectly believed that if you keep pointing to the grace of God, the people will consider God's grace as license for immorality. But in our text this morning, Paul shows us that that is not the case. See, the proper effect of the gospel is that it opens our eyes to the goodness and the glory of Christ. It brings us into an ever-deepening relationship with him. As Paul wrote in the very first chapter, remember, where he said, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to the day of completion. So the Christian's life is now bound up in the glory and the story of Christ. And because the Christian's life is bound up in the glory of Christ, we're to seek to know him more and more. So we're going to look at this morning. Now, I don't know if you picked up on it, but you notice that in the first section, Paul says we're to what? Press on. And then the next section, he says we're to walk. But then the last section, he says we're to stand. Now, which one is it? Well, all of them, really. That's how we'll divide our time this morning. First, we are to press on. Because we have a glorious upward call of God, we are to press on. The Christian's life is to be characterized by, a continually, by continually moving forward to know Christ. In verse 12, Paul begins with these words, Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect. What is the this that Paul says he hasn't obtained? Well, it was in last week's passage. So if your Bibles are open, we'll look at verse 10 and 11. Last week, <clears throat> we read that Paul counted loss, all of his moralistic record, so that he could uh, be found in Christ, which he counted as great gain. And, um, and then he goes on in verse 10 to say, his desire is that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, uh, that is, no matter where Christ leads me, whatever it might be, uh, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Um, Paul is saying, grace did not turn me into a couch potato. I'm not content to know I'm forgiven. I want to know the one who has forgiven me with such a costly forgiveness. My friends, Jesus is alive. He is on the move. He is accomplishing eternally glorious things on earth. And he has called us to join in his work. And as Paul said last week, he has found the way to know Christ more and more. If you suffer for Christ's sake, guess what? Christ meets you there in the midst of your suffering. And he guides you and he empowers you. And as he does that, guess what? Do you not come to know Christ more and more? And so Paul says, not that I've already obtained this or am already made perfect. The word perfect is the Greek word telos. It's actually in the verbal form um, here. But depending upon the context, uh, the verb teleao can be translated with a number of English words. For instance, to make perfect, to complete, to complete. Uh, to accomplish, to mature. Essentially, it means your goal has been achieved. And Paul is saying, my goal of knowing Christ and becoming like him, well, it's not complete. (laughs) I haven't fully seen that in my life yet. Paul is saying that glorious new life that God has guaranteed me in Christ, he says, I am not content to wait for it. Paul writes, but I press on to make it my own. What powerful language. When you, heard the, when you hear the words press on, what imagery comes to mind? Focus, tireless effort. Paul says, I press on to make it my own. This glorious, pure, holy, and powerful life of Christ, I press on to make it my own. Now, what is Paul's motivation for pressing on? It can sound kind of legalistic. Just press on, good Christian. What is our motivation? Oh, it's amazing. Paul has a different motivation than the legalistic one. Why does Paul press on with so much zeal? Look what it says. But I press on to make it my own. Why? Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Paul's motivation is relational. Paul says his life is now bound up in making Christ his own. Because why? Christ has made Paul his own. Our our pressing on is the proper response to God's grace. What was Paul doing when Jesus made Paul his own? He had a different name, didn't he? His name was Saul at that point. Saul, Paul, was traveling to Damascus to do what? To round up Christians, to bring them back to Jerusalem, to try them for blasphemy with the hope of having them executed. Paul was in no way looking for Jesus, but Jesus came looking for Paul. Christian, try to picture something similar in your own life. Jesus came to you. He made you his own and he has called you personally so that you may know him personally. One day you will be perfect in this regard. You will see him face to face. One day you will stand there before him and he will transform you into glory. That is the Christian hope. Paul is saying mature Christians delight in the fact that Christ knows them personally and that God has promised a day when he'll make us like Christ. We will rise from the dead into a new heavens on this earth. No longer will there be any sin or corruption. No longer will we have any desires to sin. We will be transformed, body and soul, in powerful, glorious perfection. This is the good work that God has begun in you, if you are in Christ, and he will carry it on to that day of completion. And so because Christ has made us his own, because Christ is taking us into that day, we want nothing less than to press on today towards that end, that telos. And do you see why a Christian who is mature in the understanding of God and what they're doing, what he's doing in their lives, could just not be licentious? When we understand what Christ is doing, we cannot even begin to let the grace of God be an excuse for self-absorbed living. No, we press on to know Christ to be more like him, Paul models for the readers here the singular focus that must be ours. Look at verses 13 and 14. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The imagery is is of a runner in a race. Forgetting what lies behind means, don't worry about how you started. It's how you run the race from here on out that matters. Then he says, straining forward to what lies ahead. The more you understand what Christ has, that he has made you your own, the more you strain towards what lies ahead. Paul says he's straining and pressing on towards a goal. What is it? He calls it the prize the prize of the upward call of God in Christ. It's as if each day as Paul tries to find where Christ is leading him and what he's calling him to do and the various sufferings that he enters into, it's as if he hears God, his heavenly father saying, hey, Paul, my son, press on. I know it's the finish line seems so far away. I know it seems like you should pause and rest, but Paul, press on. It's closer than you think. The Christian life is to be lived with a singular focus, to press on to know Christ, to press on to become more like him, to press on to honor him with our lives, to press on to fortify his church, to press on to grow his kingdom, to press on to make it your own because Christ has made you his own. You see why Paul writes in verse 15, let those of us who are mature think this way. Do you know what the Greek word for mature is? Yeah, tell us. Imagine that. Crazy, huh? Same word. There it is again. This time it doesn't mean perfect or complete. He's just referring in the context. It really refers to being mature in the Christian life. N.T. Wright says this. He says, true maturity. Listen, true maturity actually means knowing that you haven't arrived and that you must still keep pressing on forwards towards the goal. My friends, it's possible maybe some of you here this morning are kind of still processing the Christian message. Perhaps you think that becoming a Christian or Christianity is all about embracing the rules and doing them so you can feel good about yourself or that the deity will smile upon you. But that's not what it's about. It's about embracing the Son of God who died for you so that your life becomes bound up in Him. And so the Christian life isn't primarily about pressing on to know the commands of the Bible better. The Christian life is about pressing on to know Jesus Christ better. Don't get me wrong, the Bible's a good place to go to learn more about Christ, to fill our heads with information about who Christ is and what He's done. But head knowledge isn't what Paul is talking about here. Paul is talking about personal knowledge, relational knowledge. So if you're here this morning, still processing Christianity, I encourage you to to come to Christ, to seek him, to find him. And then you will find out that he, in fact, has made you his own. Now for the walk. Here's the big idea here. Because the world we live in is opposed to the ways of God, we must walk in a worthy manner. Paul uses the word walk um, to speak about just how we live our lives, you know, the quality the character of it, right? Verse 17, he says, Join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. Paul says it's important to have spiritual role models that we observe, that we seek to pattern our lives after uh, and kind of live according to their example. No doubt the Philippians looked at Paul and sought to imitate him. Look at how Paul lives so sacrificially. Look at how he trusts God's providence each and every day. Look how he's patient and kind and and wise. Look how he prays in all circumstances. And he's joyful even in the midst of trial. Paul says, look to me and look to others who are mature. See how they press on to follow Christ, observe, and walk in a similar manner. Now, why is it that it's important for us to follow the example of mature brothers and sisters in Christ? Well, because we live in a day where many people walk as enemies of Christ. Verse 18, for many of whom, I am often, of whom I'm often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross. You know, there's only two ways to walk in life. There's only two ways to live your life. As those who delightfully, joyfully bow a knee to Christ and those who don't. You're either for Christ or you are against Christ. You cannot declare neutrality. There is no such thing. You will either worship him as Lord and Savior or you will worship something, some other God, or godlike substitute, like your career, your family, your retirement account. We're all worshiping beings. We all bow our knee to something. It will either be Christ or something in this world. That's why Paul is crying about it. He sees the he sees the futility in placing our hope in earthly things as so many people do. Now who are these people who walk as enemies of Christ? Well, no doubt Paul is referring to some people in Philippi who profess to be. Christians, And yet, when you look at their lives, you really can't distinguish them from their pagan neighbors. Um, Perhaps they haven't really truly repented and trusted in Christ. They use the grace of God as permission to keep on sinning. Certainly, Paul has them in mind. But he also has in mind the larger Greco-Roman culture uh, in Philippi. How does Paul describe those who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ? Look at verse 19. He says, Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with their mindset on earthly things. Their end is destruction. The word end here in the Greek is, yeah, telos. Same word, there it is again. All right. Uh, The telos for the Christian is to one day experience perfection and joy in God's presence forever and ever. The telos for the enemies of Christ is ultimately what? Their telos is destruction. For those who say no to God all of their lives get their wish for all eternity. Paul also says their God is their belly. What does he mean by that? That sounds kind of silly. Um, belly is a metaphor for what people hunger for and therefore stuff into themselves. Picture, picture um, a big fat drunk king at a giant feast table and he's just stuffing food into him. right? That is what we humans do with all kinds of selfish pleasures. You know, we take the good things that God has given us like food and sex and possessions and and careers and, and, and instead of using them for God's glory, we exhibit sinful appetites for them and we stuff them in our bellies. We see this around us, don't we? I mean, we live in the Hamptons after all, right? Talk about a place where uh, their people's god is their belly. Paul elaborates to say that they glory in their shame. Simply put, people without Christ glory in all kinds of things that should instead cause them to blush with embarrassment. And that is the reason And What's the reason, then, for uh, walking this way? Why do they do this? Well, Paul says that they have their minds set on earthly things. The telos of those who are enemies of Christ is is upon temporal earthly things, whereas the mature Christian, that person's telos, is the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So why is it important to look at examples of mature Christians and how we walk? Because we can become sucked into the allure of earthly things. It's true, isn't it? One moment we can joyfully profess that we're going to live every moment of our lives for the glory of Christ, and then the next moment we're binge walking walking dead. Right? One moment we're happily pledging financial support for all kinds of various Christian charities, and then the next moment we're prioritizing our kitchen remodel. It's as if this world has voices that we cannot resist, and it's they're just calling out to us. You're all familiar with the sirens from Greek mythology, right? Sirens were dangerous creatures. They lured sailors with their enchanting music and voices and caused them to be shipwrecked on their rocky coast of their island. And once there, well, their fate was sealed, There are sirens in our world that are calling us today, earthly things that lull humanity into lethargy. How are we to fight the sirens call? One way would be what you see in uh, Homer's epic, the Odyssey. Remember Odysseus, remember what he did? Uh, He had his sailors on the ship plug their ears with wax uh, and then he was tied by them to the mast so that when he heard the sirens call, Uh, he couldn't uh, actually move towards them or respond. Now, we'd like to think that we could do that too, that in our flesh, we can bind ourselves to some sort of mast of self-restraint. But our flesh is weak, isn't it? Christian, what are the siren calls that you're tempted to listen to? And how are we to silence their call. Perhaps there's another way, something different than Odysseus's way. Consider the way of Jason and the Argonauts on their, on their journey to find the golden fleece. Jason was warned that, that he, by, by the centaur Chiron that he needed to bring along with him uh, Orpheus. And when Orpheus heard the siren voices, what did he do? He drew out his lyre. That's kind of like a guitar, a stringed instrument. And he drowned out the sirens' voices by playing music more beautifully than they. My friends, that is the way of the gospel. Though our flesh is weak, And it calls out to us and sings songs of earthly pleasures. The gospel is far more beautiful. And when we listen to the gospel and we press it into our lives, we listen not to the calls of this earth. Does that make sense? The only thing that can enable us to walk in a worthy manner is the beautiful music of the gospel. That Christ has made us his own that our lives are now found in him. Maybe appropriate that. So we're to press on, we're to walk, we're also to stand firm as we await our savior. Verse one of chapter four, we see Paul passionately cares for these Philippians. How do we know? Well, he calls them brothers or brethren, their family. He loves them and he longs for them. At the end, he calls them my beloved. And in the midst of all this affection, he says, stand firm thus in the Lord. Paul wants them to have a resolute commitment not to waver. Stand firm in your commitment to press on and to walk in a way that honors Christ. Don't set your your hopes on temporal, earthly things. Instead, focus intently upon where Christ is leading each of you. Find his will for each of your lives. Enter into the suffering sacrifice of the Christian life, and you will find Christ there, and you will know Him better. Stand firm in that belief. Now, what's the motivation for us to do this? Look at verses 20 and 21. This is our motivation. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body. How do we know? Because he's got the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Jesus is on his throne. The day's going to happen. It's coming. Now, the people in Philippi were very proud of who they were as citizens. They were citizens of the greatest kingdom on earth, the Roman Empire. Caesar, the emperor, was literally described with these words, Lord and Savior. And he was worshipped as such by his subjects. Hope was placed in the earthly success of the Roman Empire. Remember the Pax Romana, the great Roman peace. People placed their hope in what Rome would bring, kind of like people today, placing their hope in what our government can bring or their jobs can bring or careers. And the people in Philippi had a special place in the empire. That city actually was declared an official Roman colony and tens upon tens of thousands of retired Roman soldiers moved there. Try to imagine 10-cent wing night at the local pub in Philippi. <laughs> what a contrast to what Paul writes. Paul says to the Philippians, he reminds them of their true citizenship. Now, the word citizenship could Easily, perhaps even more appropriately, be translated with the word commonwealth. But our commonwealth is in heaven. Paul is saying, don't forget who we are as Christians, who our identity is. Paul is saying, saying, we're the one who has a future to come. The true Lord and Savior is coming. Paul is reminding us that this world is going to be our home. Just not yet. Remember, we live in the already, but not yet. And so we're to stand firm in the truth that our Savior is returning. And when he returns, what will he do? Heaven comes to earth. The commonwealth of heaven comes down. Our bodies will be raised from the dead into glory. If you want to read more about that, read 1 Corinthians 15. That's a great place to study that. Paul says, stand firm as we await our Savior Don't use God's grace as an excuse to listen to the siren calls of earthly glory. Don't seek status in earthly citizenship. Instead, stand firm in the Lord. Hopefully this morning we've seen that the grace of God is not an excuse for self-absorbed, licentious living. I know for some who are outside of Christianity, they look in and they see Christians, and what do they see? They see a lot of hypocrisy. I get it, but understand this. What we proclaim as Christians isn't that we now follow these rules well. We haven't yet arrived, that's what we profess. We profess that we can't be the people we know we should be, and therefore we trust in Christ as our Savior. And out of that, we want to be who God is going to make us to be. And I know some Christians don't do a very good job of living in humility or or, or really being a good example. But guess what? They're forgiven in Christ. And maybe they're just not mature. (laughs) And maybe the more they walk with Christ, the more mature they'll become. And the more beauty you will see in them. But speaking to the Christians here, the grace of God is not an excuse to listen to the siren calls of earthly things. Because Christ has made you his own, you are to press on to know him. Because this world is full of enemies of Christ, you're to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. And because our citizenship is in heaven and we await a savior from there, we are to stand firm in the Lord. Now, one final story to drive home the importance of us maturing, for us to press on, to walk, and stand firm. In his book, Don't Waste Your Life, which we've got three copies on the book table back there. I encourage you to pick it up and read it. It's a wonderful book. John Piper writes the following words. I will tell you what tragedy is. I will show you how to waste your life. Consider a story from February 1998 edition of Reader's Digest, in which, which tells about a couple who, quote, took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells. End quote. Piper writes, at first when I read it, I thought it might be a joke, a spoof on the American dream, but it wasn't. Tragically, this was the dream. Come to the end of your life, your one and only precious, God-given life, and let the last great work of your life, before you give an account to your creator, be this, playing softball and collecting shell. Picture them before Christ on that great day of judgment. Look, Lord, see my shells. That is a tragedy. And people today are spending billions of dollars to persuade you to embrace the tragic dream. Over against that, I put my protest. Don't buy it. Don't waste your life. May the grace of God motivate us to forget what lies behind, strain forward to the goal, the upward call of God in Christ. Maybe one day hear those words we long to hear from Christ. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Father, if we do anything, it's to admit that we are weak, that we so readily not only listen to the siren calls, but we rush after things of this world. We take the things that you've given us to use for your glory, and we use them for our own. We confess that. We thank you that in Christ we are now found. And we're going to strain forward today. We pray that you would remind us of the wonderful call of the gospel. May that fill our hearts and minds. May we be motivated by grace to know our Savior and walk in him, we pray. Amen.